back uh, if anyone needs them. Okay, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered, you have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, uh, before we pray, I, I thought I, a way of explanation this morning. You might often see that after the church finishes, I, I duck off. It's not because I don't want to speak to you. Um, and, it, and, it, and I do apologise because I know some will talk about the sermon. I just go to the hospital straight after here, so it's part of my work. Um, it's the only reason why I, I, I'm ducking off. Um, it's not that I don't want to speak with you. Uh, let me lead us in prayer. Almighty Lord of the heavens and the earth, uh, we are in awe of your glory today and are so grateful for your unfailing and immeasurable love, your infinite goodness and your awesome power. Holy Lord, we thank you for the wonder and the glory of your Son who is our provision. And we ask today that in your great mercy you may deepen our knowledge of the glory and goodness of Christ. And Father, may our faith be ever deepening in your Son and that the Holy Spirit would produce in us that ever deepening fruit and fullness of faith. Father, not only that we would reflect your glory ever more deeply but be filled with your joy. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen. Well, in my late teens and early 20s, I worked as a motor mechanic for Ansett Airlines. Started off there when I was 16 um, at the airport. Uh, those of you who, who may not know, um, uh, those of us who were born just after the Earth's crust cooled, uh, there was an airline called Ansett. It was similar to Qantas, but only smaller. And I can remember the time when our department was called to a special meeting with a senior manager, he was to address us. Now, this was very, very unusual because senior managers never came to address a bunch of motor mechanics. 
So we crammed into this small room, I can still see it before me, and all waiting with eager expectation, what's he going to say? And I'll never forget his words, very close to this. He said, gentlemen, I'm here to tell you today the gravy train is over. This workshop has lived beyond its means and we're now entering a deregulated airline market. From now on, tighten your belts, otherwise we may not survive, we may not make it. Now, after the meeting, all the mechanics sort of gathered together, you could imagine, discussed, and the consensus amongst all of us was, this is scaremongering. This is just senior management trying to squeeze more out of these lowly mechanics who nobody sees, right? For us, the thought of that great icon, uh, Antet Airlines, uh, could disappear and exist no more was laughable. Right? It was ridiculous. None of us took his message seriously. Ten years later, Ansett Airlines went bankrupt and no longer exists. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it's the glorious and gracious Lord Jesus, risen from the dead, has a message for the seven churches throughout what we know back then was Asia Minor. The message, this message originates from the Ancient of Days. This is the one whose word is like a double-edged sword judging the churches, which means it would be very foolish of us here this morning to brush off this word of Christ as scaremongering. In fact, it's in his great mercy that Christ is revealing to us what he expects when he walks around and within his people. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember that Christ's message to the seven churches is also the message to all churches throughout all time. The number seven is symbolic for completeness or wholeness. So this is a message not only for those seven churches in Asia Minor, but for us here. Now, I don't want to actually give you too much of a sermon spoiler, but I thought before we look at the church to Ephesus today... It would be helpful if I give you the big picture of what this message to the churches is about. So let me very briefly give you sort of the bird's eye view, then we'll go into the worm's eye view. The bird's eye view is this. The church at Ephesus, Christ focuses on love. When we come to the church at Smyrna, he focuses on sacrifice. When we come to the church at Pergamon, the focus is on truth. Then when you come to the church at Thyatira, the, church, the focus is on holiness. And then when we come to the church at Sardis, the focus is on boldness. The church at Philadelphia, I'm actually sorry, the church at Sardis, the focus is on faith. Faith. The church at Philadelphia, the focus is on boldness. And the church at Laodicea, the focus is on humility. So... Christ's message to the seven churches is a message about love, sacrifice, truth, holiness, faith, boldness and humility. This is just an aside, but a week doesn't go by where I do not pray through this message for us here. Let me give you an example. Gracious Father, in your loving mercy... Please be with us at the church, at the branch, that our love in Christ will ever be deepening and our love for each other 
lead us to be a people who willingly give up like Christ. May we always uphold truth, never tolerating error. Lead us to uphold holiness, never tolerating evil. Father, may we remember Christ in everything we do. Give us boldness in our service and an ever-deepening humility. Now, why do I pray like this? Well, according to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, this is God's will for us. And he has promised to answer every prayer that is according to his will. I do that and I encourage you maybe to do the same as you come through this series, is allow these verses, these, these, these two chapters, to govern your praying. For when we pray such prayers, this is what honours God. Let me give you, begin with a worm's eye view. Christ's message to the church at Ephesus. In, in verse 1 we read this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, this particular line is repeated to all seven churches. There is a little bit of debate about what it means to the angel of a church in Ephesus right, but what seems clear to me is that each church has an angel in heaven. Now, this sounds odd to us, but let me explain. In verse 20 of chapter 1, Jesus, this is from last week, tells us that the seven stars in his right hand are the seven angels of the seven churches. It really shouldn't surprise us uh, that there is angels for the churches appointed in the heavenlies. In Hebrews chapter 1, uh, that is the book of Hebrews, angels are described as ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation. Do you remember in Matthew's Gospel, we're told that the children have angels whose faces always, who, 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 who always see the face of God? Now, of course, I'm delving into things that we know little about, but the reality of angelic beings in the heavenlies ministering for the sake of the churches is clear. And what a joy that is. God sends his angels to minister amongst us. Now, not only does he send his angels to minister amongst us, but he, Christ Jesus addresses the angel of the churches. And the purpose of this is that the Lord Jesus will reveal his will for the church to the angel, and then the angel will then bring that message to John. He will write it down, and he will send it to the churches. Now, in a Western world, and I'll just briefly on this, for us angels seem a bit odd. If you were in the Islamic world, it's not odd at all. Angels have a lot of sense of authority and, and brings, uh, it brings a sense of uh, meaning and power that angels would be a part of God's revelation, certainly wouldn't be uncomfortable in, in a world that's more spiritually driven. And that's what we see here. Friends, the message of, of, of uh, Christ to the church in verse 1 begins like this. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks amongst the seven golden lampstand. Again, do you notice that this vision is taken from chapter 1? And this image is to remind the Ephesian Christians that the Lord rules over the churches. See, it's by his sovereignty and his power that he governs not only the angels 
who he sends to help the church, but he, he, he he's actually has all authority over the church. And by his sovereign power, he knows what's going on within the life of all of his churches, his people. Now, it might seem obvious for us this morning that the Lord knows what's going on amongst us, but sometimes we act as if he doesn't. So in our busyness, we can get so caught up, we never ask the question, are we pleasing God? You know, are we doing his will? Is our service pleasing to him? Well, what does Jesus see when he looks at the church at Ephesus? It's clear he sees a hard-working, sacrificial, thoroughly orthodox and morally good church. Now, let me reread to you verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested all those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Can you hear how this is a church that is toiling toiling hard in the work of the Lord? They're a busy lot, and what's more, they're suffering for it. Christ says they're enduring patiently, bearing up under great stress, And they're doing this for God's name's sake. And they're not growing weary. It's very impressive. In fact, it's admirable. There's also something impressive in the way they've embraced truth and righteousness. In verse 2, they do not put up with evil. Now, there was much evil around the time of the the Ephesian churches at the time this was written. Much evil. There was temple prostitution, idol worship drunken feasts, uh, all types of immorality. But if you were to pop your head into the Ephesian churches' meetings, you wouldn't see a hint of anything like that. These believers did not put up with any of that. And furthermore, they embraced truth in such a way that false teachers didn't stand a chance. Right? There was a particular group of false teachers called the Nicolaitans. And this is what they were arguing. They were saying... In Christ we have incredible freedom. That is true. They then said, that means we have the freedom to indulge in idol worship and sexual immorality. Christ has given us freedom. That was their argument. In the face of such false teaching, the church at Ephesus tested them, found them to be false, and they sent them on their way. Right? This is truly a splendid Christian community. It appears to be a model church in every way. Its members are busy in practice, patient in suffering, and orthodox in their belief. But there's one thing missing. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. While the Ephesian Christians were hardworking, orthodox, and upright, they at the same time descended from the height of devotion to the depths of mediocrity. They had lost the love they had at first. So incredibly, there was no love in this church. I take it to mean that they had lost their love for God and flowing from that, of course, becomes their love for one another. How have they done this? 
We're not told, but I don't think it's hard to imagine. The scripture tells us that the works of love are patience and kindness. Love doesn't envy, doesn't boast, it's not arrogant, it's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. The scriptures tell us that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. In fact, if you were to read in the letter to the Galatians, the the whole law is summed up, love your neighbour as yourself. John himself teaches in his letters, his epistles, that God is love and that we should love one another not simply in words but in deeds. According to the scriptures, love for God and love for one another is to ooze out of every part of our lives in the way we think, in the way we speak, in the way we act and the affections of our hearts. My sisters and brothers, this was missing at the church of Ephesus. Missing. Right? They had good works. They had truth. They had morals. They had endurance. But none of it was accompanied by love. Now maybe in their drive for doctrinal truth, they disregarded the spiritual well-being of their weaker brothers. Right? No patience, just arrogance. And maybe in their moral uprightness, they rejected those who failed, but then repented and wanted to come back into the body of believers. No compassion, just an unwillingness to bear the burdens of the weak. Maybe in their hard work, they thought that they deserved salvation and acted as if God owed them. Right? No humility, just pride. I'm not sure how their lovelessness was manifested, but what I am sure is that love matters. It matters to the living God, and in fact, Christ is telling us that love is a mark of a true and living church. In fact, it matters so much, it's impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven without it. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So if the Christians at Ephesus refuse to love God and they refuse to love one another, they'll cease to exist as a church. They'll cease to be God's people. What does that mean for us here at the branch? I think firstly, we must not be fooled into thinking that just because we are hardworking in ministry, orthodox in our belief, or morally upright in our behaviour, that we are then at the heights of Christian spirituality. Without love for our gracious and compassionate Lord, and without love for one another, We are nothing and gain nothing, says the scriptures. Please don't misunderstand what the Lord is telling us here. Love does not embrace error. Love does not indulge in sin or encourage laziness. 
not at all. We are to be hardworking. We are to be orthodox. We are to be morally upright. But all those works must be marinated, soaked in love. Let me ask you this morning. Do you gossip? Do you resent those whom God has blessed? Are you refusing to forgive someone who has wronged you? Do you allow your sisters and brothers in the Lord who are falling away from Christ just to drift off without warning them or urging them to come back to Christ? Do you see your sister and brother in need and do nothing? In verse 5, Christ gives us the remedy for lovelessness. Let me read it to you again. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. My sisters and brothers, the Ephesian church could regain the love that they had at first, according to Christ, by remembering and repenting. Now, this verse is so gracious, so good, because do you know what it's telling us? God's intention in giving this word to the Ephesian Christians is not to condemn them. This is not a word of judgment for condemnation. This is a word of judgment for redemption. Christ is seeking to restore his beloved church. What they needed to do was to cast their mind back to the past and see how much the Lord has loved them. That's what it means to remember. Remember how God has loved you. He gave you everything. There's nothing more left for God to give. The cupboard's empty. Everything God has, he's given to you in his son. In Christ, not only are their sins forgiven, but remembered no more. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. They know a joy that surpasses all earthly joys. The peace of God transcends all understanding. Every spiritual gift God has laid out to the Ephesian Christians. Now, Jesus is not calling the Ephesians to live in the past, no, but to recall it and to compare where they once were as a way of moving them to repent. At this point, I just want a little aside. What is repentance? Well, I think the best um, definition I've ever come across is from um, uh, Spurgeon. Repentance is an act of a will, primarily, It's where we turn our hearts away from sin. That's what it is. Repentance isn't trying harder. Repentance is saying, I know this is a sin. And Lord, I turn my heart away from it. Oh, I don't know how I'm going to stop. But fill me with your spirit. Because I know in you, my heart is made tender. Do for me what you've promised, Lord Jesus. Help me to turn from this. That's what repentance is. You and I can try harder all our life not to sin, but without Christ, we're going to fail. 
Right? Another thing to remember is none of us repent perfectly. Right? So what it means is we have a need to keep repenting. That is, keep turning our hearts away from sin. It's part of our Christian life. And the good news, my brothers and sisters, is, is that God is so good and gracious. He promises to make our hearts tender so not only we can repent, but keep repenting. The real question is, are we willing? Right? Jesus is not asking us to feel bad about our sins. Right? He doesn't ask us to feel guilty about our sins. He doesn't ask us to try harder. What he asks us to do is to turn our hearts away. And when we do that, he will enable us to walk in holiness, love and truth. Not perfectly, but progressively. If you see your need to deepen your love for the Lord, and if this morning you see your need to deepen your love for one another, by faith... Pour out your heart to God and he will fulfil your desire. He's promised to. So, for example, if you resent those within the congregation whom God has blessed, in whatever way, in Christ, turn your heart away. Rejoice in what God is doing in the lives of others. If you're refusing to forgive those who have wronged you, in Christ... Turn your heart away. Show them the grace God has shown you. I just want to give you a very small example from my own life. I need to preface this by saying I'm of a conviction that I have a need to be forgiven by others more than I have a need to forgive others. I'm sure of it. But when people have sinned against me, What I do is I come to the Lord and say, Heavenly Father, this hurts so much. This is so difficult. But I know that you have commanded me to forgive. Now give me the ability. I turn my heart away from my stubbornness and my bitterness and my anger. And I turn now to you, Lord Jesus. Fill me with your spirit Make it tender to forgive. God has answered that prayer every time. And what's more, as time goes on, because I need to keep praying that prayer, (laughs) that's not a one-off. Because it's hard to forgive, especially when the hurt's deep. But let me tell you what happens. In Christ, duty always turns to delight. Because as time goes on, not only my praying turns from, Lord, give me the heart to forgive them, but Lord, thank you that I can forgive. It's my joy to forgive. I love to forgive them. Oh, look at how you've forgiven me. Over time, in the Christian life, our duty turns to delight in the power of Christ. It really does. I'll give you one quick example if I've got time. I've always struggled with being selfish. And I, find it, I found it hard from a young boy to give financially. 
And I've laid that for many years before Christ. And I've, I've called upon the Lord to deepen my generosity. He's answered that prayer. And, and, and now in my later years, the transformation's incredible. I just can't wait to give away. I want to give. And I think, how did I travel from that selfish person who trusted in money for security and not Jesus to something that where my desire is now, I can't wait to do that. Now, it needs to increase. I keep praying for a deeper generosity. Don't hear me wrong. But, but in Christ, duty becomes delight. That's the power of the gospel. You know, if you're gossiping, friends, in Christ, turn your heart away. Speak good, not evil, about your sisters and brothers. And if you're neglecting your sisters and brothers in need, in Christ, turn your heart away and give generously to meet their needs. By the way, the devastation in Turkey is horrendous, especially for our Christian sisters and brothers. To whatever your capacity, I would urge you to give through funds like Barnabas to our brothers and sisters who are absolutely devastated. Don't walk away from those images loving our sisters and brothers only in our words. That would be my encouragement. For all who repent, there is a great promise. Look at verse 7 with me. He who has an ear, let him hear to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus reminds the Ephesian church that for those who overcome, there is a great reward. And that reward is eternal life in the presence of God who loves us so much. Now, it's very important here because the imagery of Eden and heaven, the reason why they're presented to us in this passage is to show us so much is at stake. Right? The loveless church is a temporary church. It's one that has no place in God's eternity, we're told. So my sisters and brothers this morning, please hear what the Spirit says to the church at Ephesus. In the power of our risen and glorified Lord Jesus Christ, in the confidence that he gives you, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And in the power of a risen Lord Jesus Christ, who brings you to the presence of a Father continually, who's filled you with his spirit and loves, indeed, promises to answer all prayers that are according to his will, love one another as you love yourself. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the confidence you give us today. The confidence that comes through the shed blood of your Son to come before your presence with boldness, seeking from you that which we can't manufacture in ourselves. Lord, please forgive us for those times where 
we have not loved you or one another as we ought. Father, there are times when we have spoken words, when we have done things or thought things that truly have not been loving. And we lay this and confess this before you this morning. Lord, thank you that you not only forgive our sin, but remember it no more. And we pray that by the power of your blood, Lord Jesus, continue to make our hearts so tender that you may grant to us that ever-deepening repentance where we turn our hearts away from all lovelessness that we would love you and love one another as you have commanded and modelled for us. Father, we especially pray we're in great need to continue this for all of our lives. Please, may this be a continual work of grace in each one of us each day. In Jesus' name, amen.